The rest of you can turn to Psalm chapter 119. We're going to continue in our study of the Wah stanza, verses 41 through 48. If you're a Christian here this morning, you certainly know that you're in the process of becoming like Jesus. If your effort to cooperate with the Holy Spirit um, is like mine, um, a desire to become a godly person, have you ever wondered with me that about the statements that we find in the New Testament, primarily from Jesus and John, about the ease of the Christian life? Jesus, for example, in Matthew 11 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Has that been your experience in the Christian life? How about John? his closest apostle in 1 John 5, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. I don't think it's out of the ordinary to feel like the Christian life is challenging, if not impossible. I'm not certain that it's a light burden, an easy yoke. So what is the problem with either our understanding or the words of Jesus and his apostle John. Well, the Wah stanza, the one we're in this morning in Psalm 119, takes up this issue. And I'm going to read this stanza for you and then focus on verses 45, 44 and 45. Listen as I read from Psalm 119, verse 41 says, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. And I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. In the past few weeks, I've been diving into this particular stanza, and uh, trying to help you see all the things that are related to our love for God in the Christian life. Uh, if God loves us and we love him, then we will see certain things in our lives that, that uh, are evident. We'll see obedience. We'll see evangelism. We'll see worship taking place in our Christian experience. Today, I'm going to focus on obedience Last week I focused on evangelism, but today we're going to focus on verses 44 and 45, and that is a clear instruction on obedience. So to summarize today, I want to try to explain to you that the love of God in our lives will result in a consistent obedience that not only isn't burdensome, but is joy-inducing. All right? So the, the objective here this morning is to help you as a Christian see that the Christian life isn't actually burdensome like we sometimes experience, but it is, in fact, joyful. All right? So let's, let's look here at verse 44 and the first point in your sermon outline, which is the love of God results in faithful obedience. 
faithful slash consistent obedience. Notice in verse 44 that the author promises uh, or prays, however you want to interpret that, uh, with three key words. He says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. The author uses these three words because it shows the difficulty of perseverance. Perseverance is not an easy task for the Christian. Always doing the right thing is very challenging. Secondly, the author uses the three words because it expresses the depth of his affection for God. His appreciation for the love of God being demonstrated to him. It also demonstrates the commitment to consistency in his life. He's, he's, maybe he's tired of, of seeing inconsistency rule his walk with Christ and He's going to become consistent now. And of course, it refers not only to this life, but the life to come. It's forever. Not just till I die, but it's forever taking place. So verse 44, I would say, is, is reasonable for those of us who are in Christ. It's a reasonable attitude to have for the following reasons. First, because of the nature of God's word. This, this, this exhaustive commitment to obedience, seen in verse 44, is reasonable because of the nature of God's word. Um, you know, God's word is not like the weather report that changes daily or maybe hourly. Uh, God's word is eternal because it's a reflection of God himself who is eternal. And so if God has said it, it will be an eternal truth, eternal reality. In fact, the, the word of God, the law of God, is eternally binding on God's people. And so our obedience should be constant. Secondly, this is, verse 44 is reasonable because of the nature of God. Not just his word, but himself. God's eye is always upon us, isn't he? It's, he's, he's always watching. God isn't asleep ever throughout the day so that we can get away with certain things during his nap. Uh, where we asked we couldn't otherwise. And yet it seems like we live like that a lot, doesn't it? Um, God's eye is everywhere, and so our obedience must be consistent in every situation. Have you noticed in your life, or maybe at times in your life, where this consistency hasn't been evident? Like the consistency between how you think and talk and act at church versus how you think and live and talk at home. Or between uh, how you act at church or how you act at school or at work or at leisure? Is there inconsistency between different categories of your life? Um, Matthew 6.4 indicates to us that God sees everything, even those things that are in secret. And so because God's nature is that he's always watching, this is a reasonable verse, isn't it? Verse 44. What else about God's nature causes us to think about the reasonableness of verse 44. It's, God is always working. It is God's nature to be at work in his people. Jesus said this in John 5. He said, uh, my father is working until now, and I'm working. God is always at work. And you ask, well, what's he working on? The creation's done. What else, what else is there to do? Well, there's this this ongoing thing of sanctification in the life of his people. Look what it says in Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work, 
in you will bring it to completion. So God is about bringing about a good work in you. What's God doing? If he's working, he's, he's working in you. And what is he working to accomplish? Romans 8, 29 tells us Christ-likeness. You know, uh, this may seem like a small task, but if you'll consider who we are as people, it's an enormous task, isn't it? To make us into Christ-likeness. This is what God's up to. So it's, verse 44 is reasonable because of God's nature. It's also reasonable because of grace. The, na- the nature of grace makes this verse very reasonable. Uh, I'm going to ask for some audience participation here. I'd like you all to raise your right hand. Would you do that for me? Just raise your right hand. Okay, now put that hand down and raise your left. Good. Most of you got that right. I'm happy to see that. Now, at any time during my instructions, you can put your hand down. This isn't Simon Says. (laughs) Although a few of you would have won. At any time during my instructions to raise your right or your left hand, did you have to command your heart to pump or your lungs to breathe? Of course not. Why? They're involuntary muscles. They work without your instruction or command, right? This is how grace operates in the life of a Christian. Grace is always at work. The nature of grace is that it works in those who possess it. When God grants you grace, it takes effect, it takes root and grows. Whether you're sleeping or waking, whether you're in this room or out on the golf course, grace is always active. And so it's reasonable to read in verse 44 that our obedience will be consistent and constant because of the nature of grace in our lives. Paul said this in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. He's speaking of the grace that he's experienced. It's no longer I who live, but Christ is living in me. Christ was always evident in Paul's life. The grace of Christ was always at work in Paul. Whether he was on a ship or in the synagogue or asleep or awake, God's grace was active in his life. As it is in your life and mine if we're in Christ. So it makes this verse reasonable because of the nature of grace. It's not, verse 44 is also reasonable because of the nature of sanctification. I want to spend a little bit of time here. Some of your translations uh, read, I will keep your law continually. Some read, I will walk in your law continually. Either of these translations indicate a progression, a a, a direction, a, a trajectory, if you will, of the Christian life. Walking, continuing to walk, keeping is, is a progressive thought. And what this means is that we will always have to fight for holiness. We will always have to do battle for sin. We have to keep walking continually. We have to continually keep God's law. We don't have the luxury of being on and off or cold or warm with God. If we are, I'm sure you've noticed, if you've had times of coldness versus warmth or hot versus cold, whatever it is that you experience in the Christian life, I bet you've noticed that when you are cold spiritually, you have more tendency towards sorrow or discouragement or despair. This, this is evident in our own experience. To be hot and cold with God uh, impacts spiritual progress. 
the, the, the process of sanctification, which began at the new birth, the moment you were converted by the Holy Spirit, continues until the day you'll see Jesus. So we really can't have bursts and fits of, of obedience if we want to stay encouraged and progressive in our faith. Genuine conversion is lasting conversion and impervious, really, to apostasy. You see, a Christian, a true Christian, cannot really ever apostatize. We can never experience apostasy as true believers. We will never walk away ultimately from Christ. We may have times and seasons of, of a cold heart or, or a calloused soul, but we'll never walk away if we truly know Jesus and say no more. The Apostle John describes those who do, and it seems like these folks have walked away from Christ, but the Apostle John says they never knew him to start with. If they had known him, they wouldn't have walked away from him. This is, this is the nature of sanctification. It will continue until we are like Jesus. This is what Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says. It will end in glorification. He called you. It's going to end up here one day. Glorification. You're going to see Jesus. You're going to be like him. You know, as, as your pastor, I am given the privilege and task of overseeing your souls of watching out for your spiritual growth. And I try to do different things to encourage that in you, to help you become more like Jesus. And here's another attempt right now. I will make a deal with you, all right? I'll, I'll make a deal with you that has to do with your sanctification. You only have to keep on obeying God as long as God keeps blessing you. All right, so the minute he stops blessing you, you have total freedom to stop obeying him. That's like a good deal? Yeah, I think it's a good deal. You see, when we came to Christ, we, we embraced him, didn't we? And everything he was. We embraced his lordship. We embraced his deity. We embraced his word. We, we took on Christ. And, and so we have the same reasons to continue to submit to him now, his lordship now, as we did when we first believed. Isn't God as attractive now as he was when you first embraced him? Isn't Jesus more sweet now than he was then? I think so. And so we actually have more reason to be obedient now, more reason to continually forever and ever now than then. And yet it seems like as, as Christians, we, we look back nostalgic in this, man, wasn't, weren't those great days when I first came to Jesus? And they were great days, but they're better now, right? They should be. This is what motivates us to continue with Christ. If anything is different, it is that he's been more faithful. He's had more time to be faithful in your Christian life. You have more reason to obey him. Now, if anything changed for the negative, doesn't it have to, doesn't it have to be your responsibility if anything's been changed for the negative? Yeah, it's like the old farmer and his wife who owned that 1970 Chevy pickup, you know, the one with the bench seat in it. And when they first started dating, the, the, the young farmer would have his girlfriend sit next to him, right next to him on the seat. And newlyweds, same thing. And then after years of marriage, lo and behold, they're not sitting next to each other on the seat anymore. 
Yeah, I, I, by the way, I said this in the first service and I had a few couples scoot closer together when I said this. I, I'm, not, I'm not, just bear with my illustration here. This isn't a marriage illustration. Uh, but the wife became a little bit concerned about what this demonstrated. This, they were once so in love and so together, even sitting on the bench seat right next to each other in their old Ford pickup. And so she thought she'd bring it up with her old farmer husband. Honey, I'm concerned about our relationship. We don't sit together on the seat anymore in the truck. And the wise farmer, like most men in relationships with their wives, said, I haven't moved. I remain where I've always been. You are the one who has stopped loving me. In our relationship with Christ, who's moved? Has it, has it been Christ? Is he tired of you? No, he is not. So if anything has changed, it's been our first love, isn't it? This is what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. He was concerned that they had lost their first love. They had scooted across and away from him on that proverbial seat. This is why the apostle Peter said in his first epistle to mature believers, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk. He doesn't say those of you who are spiritual infants, he says like them, crave mama's milk like you always did when you were young. Don't let that get away from you, Peter said. Crave it so that you will grow up into salvation. So I'm talking to you about sanctification here uh, um, as it relates to obedience. This verse is reasonable because of the nature of sanctification. And in that, as we consider sanctification, I want you to think a little bit with me, if you would, about drifting and the danger of drifting. Uh, drifting is kind of a touchy subject in the Christian world um, because we all know if we're truly saved, we can't eternally drift from God and, and be out of his goodwill because we're saved. But if you continue to drift, what does that indicate? If you, if you keep drifting away, you know you never drift towards God. I've told you that a few times. You always drift away from him. Well, Jesus, again, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, was concerned about this same kind of thing, about those who call themselves Christians but continue to drift. He said this, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast to Christ so that no one may seize your crown. What does that mean? The crown of what? The crown of life given to all who die embracing Christ. Don't drift so much that your crown is taken. What does this mean? It means that even though true Christians will never apostatize, if you continue to drift, you may not be a true Christian. Your crown may be taken. Friends, don't play with drifting. If you sense a drift, a spiritual drift in your life, 
It is a huge spiritual alarm going off in your spiritual cockpit. Pull up, pull up, pull up. Don't ignore it. Perseverance in the Christian life is connected to salvation all over the New Testament. And so please don't ignore the warning signs of drifting. And if you fall away from Christ, this is much more disgraceful than having never believed. Why? At least in the world's eyes, maybe in, in our own. Why is that more disgraceful than to say, to say it's more disgraceful to fall away than to have never believed? Because if you've fallen away, you have tasted. If you've fallen away, you have known. You have been in the presence of Christ. You've been in the fellowship of the saints. And you say, that doesn't work. Christ didn't mean anything to me. It, I'm more interested in the world. So if you deliberately walk away from Christ after a period of fellowship with him, you're preferring Satan, you're preferring the world to Christ. This is what happened in Israel's history repeatedly. And so God, through the prophet Micah, asks a simple question to his people. And maybe this is the question that you need to consider if you are currently drifting. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? What has made you so antagonistic towards me? Why are you continuing to drift? Why do you consider us enemies? What have I ever done to you? God is asking. How have I wearied you? Answer me. God is saying, this is confusing to me. I've done nothing but meet your needs and love you and draw you to myself. And you continue to run away. Well, tell me what it is. See, while Psalm 119, verse 44 humbles us in our inconsistent obedience. It, it reproves this inconsistency. It reminds us of the importance of faithful obedience. It, it shows us the need to be constantly watchful in the Christian life for fear that I'm drifting. You know, Satan is unaware of our weaknesses, and he, he prowls around on the perimeter of the flock seeking a lonely sheep to devour. Um, drifting away from the flock is, is prime candidate for devouring by the enemy. This not only works in real life shepherding, but in spiritual shepherding. This is why we're so concerned that you're faithful in church, that you're faithful in small group, that you're connected to God's people. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who have come in, participated, drifted out, and been consumed by the enemy. Be aware of Satan's tricks. This leads us to verse 45, which seems to be somewhat antithetical to verse 44. Verse 44 talks about the importance of consistent, regular, diligent obedience. And then verse 45 says this, and I shall walk in a wide place 
What's that mean? Some of your translations say freedom. I will walk in freedom. That seems to be the exact opposite of what's being communicated in verse 44. There is a tension here, and the tension is real for those who know Christ, for those of us who follow Christ. Yes, we are to obey. That's part of what it means to love Jesus. Jesus said this himself, didn't he? But at the same time, we are given expansive freedom. Freedom in Christ. In fact, James said this in James 1.25, the one who looks into the perfect law, that is scripture, looks into the perfect law, and then he renames it the law of liberty. This is, in James' mind, the law of liberty. That seems contradictory, doesn't it, to us, at least in our human understanding. Law and liberty? Aren't those opposites? This is counterintuitive to us. So what is the opposite of freedom? Slavery. The world accuses us, Christians, as being enslaved by our religion. You guys have no fun, is the world's accusation. We like to argue otherwise. So I would like, in the next few minutes, I would like you to bear with me. I'm going to pursue an academic rabbit trail that has profound practical ramifications, okay? So you're going to have to stick with me for a little bit as I try to explain to you the difference between freedom and slavery as it relates to Christ and Christian living, okay? So let's ask the question, what is spiritual slavery? What is spiritual slavery? The first thing that I want to say, and it's in your notes, is this. Fleshly freedom is slavery, not freedom. Fleshly freedom, if you want to put that in quotes, is slavery, not freedom. Living like you want in your pre-Christ self is not freedom, it's slavery. So freedom is not to live as we want, but to live as we ought. Let me try to unpack that for us here this morning. We have the freedom and the power to live like God has designed us to live. And yet, we many times fall back into a different lifestyle. Look what Psalm 81, verse 11 and 12 say. But my people did not listen to my voice, that is, Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. And at the time, the people of Israel thought they were free as birds. How did that end up? Anybody remember Israel's history? Not only spiritual slavery, but physical slavery is how it ended up. All right? It went beyond the metaphor, it went to reality. So how is it that doing what you want is not really freedom, but slavery? This is the question we have to get at, the answer. We have to get the answer to that question. How is it that doing what you want is not really free or freedom, but slavery? I have three things to help you see this. First is this, because sinful behavior, that's those things that, that we believe exercise our freedom, whatever they are, they're different for each of us, but sinful behavior actually interrupts the purpose for which we were created and the end to which God has planned, which was to make us eternally happy. 
You know that, right? This, we, you've, if you've been here at any length of time, you've heard that more than once. It is God's goal, God's intent, God's design that you be eternally happy. And when you sin, exercise your freedom, you interrupt that process. You interrupt God's work to get you to that eternally happy place. That's a bad thing. Sinful actions actually inhibit our progress towards joy. That's a bad thing, right? If, if I were to say anything but obedience gets you to joy, you would agree. <laughs> but when I say obedience gets you to joy, you go, oh, I don't understand that. Disobedience interrupts joy in the Christian life, in any life for that matter. Uh, that, that disobedient acts as weights or, or sinful actions acts, act as weights and shackles to keep you from experiencing what God would have and has designed us to experience, happiness. People may seem to be living it up, but they are in a spiritual prison, unable to fly to that true and lasting happiness because sinful weight keeps them from doing so. It's like the baby eagle living with squirrels in the tree. They were born together in this tree, um, and the eagle grew up thinking it was a squirrel. And of course, what all squirrels do is they gather acorns and they store them away, but the eagle had no place to store them because he was confined to this little nest that he couldn't get out of. So he created a little backpack. I don't know what eagle backpacks looked like, but he had one. And he's storing all of his acorns in his eagle backpack. And then come the day that all of his siblings and himself were going to learn how to fly. Off they go with mom and our little eagle squirrel, what happens to him, or squirrel, squirrel eagle. What happens to him with his backpack full of weight of all the things that he wanted to participate with the squirrels? Off the edge of the nest he goes and hits the ground. Why? He was weighted down. He, he couldn't actually fly like an eagle because he was weighted down with the things of squirrels. Just like you and I. God has an intent for us to experience eternal joy and we get weighted down with the things of squirrels and can't fly. That's bad. Okay? Secondly, so I have three things that I want to explain to you on how it is that doing what you want is really not freedom, but slavery. Eagles and squirrels, first point. Sinful behavior interrupts the, the process towards happiness. Secondly, anything that puts your soul and spiritual interests out of order isn't freedom, it's slavery. Let me say it again. Anything that puts your soul and spiritual interests out of order isn't freedom, it's slavery. When something less honorable prevails over something more honorable, it's a sign that something is wrong. It's a sign of spiritual slavery. Now, if you visited a country and saw that the lowliest in that country were driving Mercedes-Benz, but the king was riding a second-hand bicycle, you would say, something's wrong with that country, right? And, and you wouldn't be a genius. It's very obvious. 
Something's wrong with that country. If that is the case in your life spiritually, something's wrong with that territory. If lesser things are, are over better things, something's wrong. It's called spiritual slavery. You think that lesser things are better. You've switched things up because of sin. When a person's lusts override their God-given reason, something's wrong. Titus 3.3, Paul, describing the life before Christ, says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others, and hating one another. That's how we were. We had this whole thing flipped upside down. Romans 6.16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So when a person is living as God intends, their understanding and their conscience control their affections. Are you with me? This is the important part. When a person is living as God intends, their understanding and conscience controls their affections, and their affections control the will, and the will controls what? Action. Okay? That's how it should be. That's how God designed it. But when someone becomes enslaved by any sin, all that turns upside down and changes. Instead of understanding and conscience controlling the will, pleasure controls the will. Pleasure, whatever is pleasurable, moves the will, moves the affections, and those things, will and affections, are held captive by the person seeking pleasure. They're not controlled by their God-given intellect anymore, their, their reason or their conscience. They're controlled by this lust for pleasure, whatever it means. Doing what you want to do. This vicious cycle of moral slavery blinds people to what is true freedom. They think they're free because they can go out and sleep with whoever they want. They're slaves and they don't even know it. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 6. Where does that end? That kind of behavior, where does it end? Paul said destruction. It ends with the destruction of the person, which is why John Owen said, you'd better be killing sin or it will kill you. So how is it that doing what you want is not really freedom but slavery? Remember the illustrations of the squirrel and the, and the eagle. Remember what controls your actions. Thirdly, what is, how is it that doing what you want is not really freedom but slavery? Let me just say this. Practice establishes pattern. Practice establishes pattern. This is what Jeremiah 13 said about it. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard his spots? No, they cannot. Then also, you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil, right? No, you can't, which is Jeremiah's point. If you're accustomed to doing evil, you're going to continue doing evil. Just like 
the leopard can't change its spots. That's what leopards have is spots. Practice establishes patterns. The more you sin in any particular area, the less chance of victory you have over that. You become enslaved to that. The more times you hit a nail, the further it enters into that piece of wood and the harder it is to remove. Romans 6, 16 again. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Which one's it going to be? This is what Augustine said about this very thing in his own life in his book, Confessions. Lord, I am bound not with iron, but with an obstinate will. You know, one thing about the book, Confessions, it's like looking into a mirror. This is looking into a mirror for me. Lord, I am bound not with iron, but with an obstinate will. I gave my will to mine enemy, and he made a chain of it to bind me and keep me from thee, keep me from God. A perverse will gave way to lustings, and lustings made way for custom or habit. And custom, let alone, brought a necessity upon me that I can do nothing but sin against you. That's called spiritual slavery, even though he wanted to do it. So it seems that sin sneaks up on us and we get used to its presence in our lives and before we realize it, the enemy has set the hook and we are enslaved. Fleshly freedom is slavery which should chase us to Jesus Christ, shouldn't it? He is the only one who can emancipate us from our slavery. And this is our next point. True freedom is walking with Christ. Fleshly freedom is slavery. True freedom, on the other hand, true, godly, biblical freedom is walking with our Creator, Christ Jesus. And we're going to, you'll notice some of this ground that I'm going to say because we've, we've already covered it. But first of all, walking with Christ simply guides us to our desired end. Not only desired, but uh, designed end. Christ is leading us to that designed end of eternal, infinite happiness. So, the reason that that is freedom is it takes us to the place that we want to go in our heart of hearts, even as on the path of obedience. Jesus said in Matthew 7, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life and those who find it are few. It's, it's hard for those without Christ. The, the way is, of sin it is the broad way, Jesus said, and that ends, like Paul said, in destruction. And there are many on that road. Paul calls the way of sin the way of flesh versus the way of the Spirit. And so Jesus and Paul really are arguing that the way of the Spirit is actually the way of freedom because it ends in life and peace and joy, the thing that you really want. 
You just get interrupted by sin. So what is it that enslaves more? God's commands or our fallen will? It's our will that causes the problem. So a person who's been given a new and enlarged heart, as Psalm 119 verse 32 says, is perfectly fitted for a life of joyful obedience. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 1 verse 6, it is he who began a good work in you and he'll complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. It's a good work. It's a freeing work. So true freedom is walking with Christ because Christ is going to guide us to our desired and designed end. Also, when we love, when we obey, when we sacrifice, those things the world say are restrictive, loving one another sacrificially, obeying, serving, etc., we are actually exercising the highest virtues known to man. There are no higher virtues than what I just mentioned. These things are, are the clearest reflection of the God of freedom. If there's anybody that's free, it's God, right? He can, we just said it this morning. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Talk about freedom. But these things, love, obedience, service, sacrifice, are all virtues that flow from God towards us. The most free being in the universe are these things. Loving, obedient. Jesus came to obey his Father. Serving. He came to serve, not to be served. These are the highest virtues known to man. These are embodied in Jesus, into whose image we are being made by the Holy Spirit. Ever since the fall of man, humanity has been in spiritual slavery. By nature, we are born slaves. We're born under the power, the influence, the dominion of the enemy. We are under the curse of the law. But now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, now that Christ has finished his work on our behalf and given us the indwelling Holy Spirit, we have been given freedom to joyfully, consistently, hilariously walk with God. And we should all be happy about it because it's taking us right to where we want to go. Eternal, infinite joy. So true freedom, true freedom is walking with Christ. Walking with Christ is freedom from sin. Romans 8, let me read a couple of verses for you. Romans 8, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus said in John 8, so if the Son has set you free, you'll be free indeed. Psalm 119.32, I just read it for you. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Walking with Christ is freedom from sin. Freedom from those things that inhibit your progress towards your ultimate end and your ultimate joy. Walking with Christ is freedom from fear. So many of us are inhibited by fear. Fear of God's wrath, fear of judgment, fear of this, fear of that. And yet we read in Hebrews 2, since 
Thereafter, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself, that's speaking of Christ, likewise, he partook of the same things. He became one of us. That through death, Christ's death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now listen, and deliver all those who through fear of death have been subject to lifelong slavery. There's no more fear in Christ. He's taken care of the worst possible scenario. It's called death. He's done away with it for us. We're not going to die and that be the end. We're going to die and experience resurrection just like he did. Joyful, eternal resurrection. So friends, what I've wanted you to see here in Psalm 119, uh, verses 44 and 45, is that we are indeed expected to walk in obedience, but this obedience results in our, our ultimate joy and is exactly where we want to go. Are you walking in freedom? Are you walking in obedience? Those, that's, that's a synonym here. Freedom and obedience. It begins with the embrace of the one who gives freedom, Jesus Christ. It means that we exchange masters, we, we give up ourselves, we give up our own agenda, we give up the worldly system and take on Christ. Are you walking in that freedom? If you are, you're going to be concerned for your spiritual condition. You're going to be determined with the psalmist here to obey the law continually forever and ever because any interruption that's going to interrupt my joy. We're going to be concerned about our sin more than we are about the difficulty of following God's commands. Friends, this is the walk of freedom, is walking with Jesus. Let's pray. God, we know that we're in a battle of our mind as we consider what it means to be truly free. We know what the world says about true freedom, and, but we also know what your word says about true freedom. We've experienced, God, what your word has said about it. We, we experience uh, discouragement and despair when, when we fail to walk with Christ, and yet we experience joy and happiness when we do. And so, God, we need you, your Holy Spirit, to, to come alongside of us and help us as Christ Jesus, the ultimate and infinitely happy one, has promised that he would, and minister to us and through us. Help us to understand and embrace the true walk of freedom in Christ. Oh, God, have mercy on your people here at Sun Valley Church. Help us to be a people who see the, the glory and joy of walking faithfully with Christ day by day. God, help us to see the importance of trusting you in the things that you've commanded, believing that you have your, our best in mind in those commandments. Help us to follow wholeheartedly and reward us with joy and, and happiness and contentment and peace. God, we, we love you. We love your word. Uh, we want to be, be a people who are a happy people, who you've designed us to be. Make this so in Christ through the Spirit. Amen.